Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Charlotte Readers Podcast is also supported by the novel Deadly Declarations, available in print and audiobook wherever books are sold, and an ebook on Amazon Kindle. Written by Landis Wade and narrated by Bill A. Jones, Deadly Declarations is a light-hearted legal thriller that delves into a 250-year-old colonial mystery that Founding Father John Adams called one of the greatest curiosities and one of the deepest mysteries that ever occurred to him. For reviews and information about Deadly Declarations, please visit LandisWade.com. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. In this episode 298, we visit with Robert Gwaltney, author of The Cicada Tree, Set in the South at the time the cicadas emerge, what one reviewer calls a Southern Gothic with a vengeance. It's the summer of 1956 when a brood of cicadas descends upon Providence, Georgia, a natural event with supernatural repercussions, unhinging the life of Annalise Newell, an 11-year-old piano prodigy. Amidst this emergence, dark obsessions are stirred, uncanny gifts provoked, and secrets unearthed. Robert Gulrick, number one New York Times bestselling author, says this about the novel. Following in the magnificent footsteps of Carson McCullers and Harper Lee, Robert Gwaltney creates a wonderful snapshot of the friendship that forms between Annalise and Etta May, two 11-year-old girls in 50s small-town Georgia. This is a book to love and remember, and every book club in America would be wise to snap it up. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for spending some of your valuable time with us. We very much appreciate it, uh, and thank you for being here. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author, turned podcaster of books and stories, and love interviewing authors about their books and sharing that uh, with you, the listener. I also love how interviewing more than 300 authors on this podcast has helped my own writing journey. I've learned quite a bit from these talented guests. And if you'd like to learn more about my books and uh, what I've done with that uh, knowledge, you can uh, check out LandisWade.com. You can sign up for my newsletter there. And uh, also, please follow me on BookBub. And for everything related to Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out CharlotteReadersPodcast.com. Now, let's get to the episode. Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, that's great praise, man. It certainly is. I tell you, you can't get any better than that. Yeah, and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed this uh, book. I, you know, I, I, I read all kinds of genres doing the podcast, and don't naturally get drawn to literary fiction. But I just, I could every time I was, I was reading this book, I'd stop, and my wife would be reading something, and, and say, "You're going to interrupt me again, aren't you?" I say, "Yeah, I want to, I want to tell you about this little part I just read." I mean, you, you really did with the prose. Uh, such beautiful language. Hats off to you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Let's talk about you just a little bit. Okay. Um, you're a graduate of Florida State University. You live in the South, uh, uh, in, in Atlanta area. Um, you write the Southern fiction. Uh, you've been resident in the South all your life. But on your website, you say, 
to understand me, I will tell you this. A kindergarten teacher once loomed above me, staring down the crooked barrel of her nose. I love that, by the way. And said, you are a peculiar sort of boy. She said, regarding the spangled ballerina tutu I managed to pull up over my Sears and Roebuck tough skin jeans. And then you say she got one thing right. Indeed, I was and still remain a peculiar sort of boy. So I just love this teaser. So here's my question. Talk about how you've always been a peculiar sort of boy and how that helps influence your writing. Sure. Well, I think that, I mean, obviously growing up in South Georgia, a little boy that might put on a tutu might be a bit of an outsider. Um, <laughs> I would say so. Just a little bit, right? <laughs> right. Um, so I think that I've always been a little bit on the outside, a little bit on the fringe, I think. And um, I think most artistic people are observers. And I think as a result, uh, that's what that that's what gives us a good ear for being good writers. So I think that um, that peculiarity, um, had I not um, been different, I don't know that I would be a writer or perhaps be the kind of writer that I am today. Yeah, well, it does take a certain kind of difference to be a writer because you've got to kind of go in your space and be comfortable with who you are for long periods of time, right? Absolutely. Um, it, it is a lonesome endeavor at times, writing. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, I'm also curious how your life uh, as this lifelong resident of the South, what you describe as the rash-inducing subtropical climate of, of Cairo, Georgia, how that influenced your writing and this book in particular. Well, I think that in any Southern novel, um, the South is a character, and I think that the climate is a character as well. And in most Southern fiction, you know, you, th there is always this this oppressive heat. I think that um, that you can play with to ramp tension. Um, so I think that the writing novels in the South, uh, especially playing with all of those elements of, of that oppressive climate, certainly does lend itself to tension, as it did in the Cicada Tree. Yeah, well, you can feel it, um, you know, in, in the novel. Um, you really uh, make the setting, you know, a character. I mean, you get, uh, uh, you know, the, you can hear the cicadas <laughs> buzzing. Uh, you know, interesting story about the cicadas. Tell us about the cicadas. For those who don't really know much about cicadas and, and their life cycles, uh, they, they only come out every so often. They don't live very long, do they? They don't. Um, you know, and back in Cairo, Georgia, we actually called them locusts, which um, was not the proper term for them. So when I wrote the novel, I felt that probably referring to them as their actual uh, name, cicadas, would probably um, be less confusing to folks. But the cicadas, I mean, so we experience them every summer, but there are these broods of cicadas. So cicadas really start out as nymphs underground beneath us, and they sort of percolate for a while, and then they rise to the surface. They latch on to bark and trees and fences, and then they molt. And um, that large, that, that very loud, uh, screechy sing song is from um, the males, and it's a mating call, really. And that's how they call and signal to one another. Uh, then they have, the, they come together, they produce more nymphs, those nymphs crawl back into the ground, and the cycle starts all over again. Yeah, and you mentioned locust, um, and it immediately conjures up images from the Bible. You know, and, and in some respects, you're your story does have that kind of, uh, uh, you know, religious, uh, spiritual feel to it. Did that also play in your mind as you're thinking about cicadas for this for this book? Absolutely. I think that um, that there are biblical themes running throughout. Initially, I wanted to just tell an entertaining story, 
But I think that if a person enjoys it enough and they'd like to go back and make another path and analyze it a bit, I think that they'll find that the story's rich with with metaphor and symbolism and um, literary allusions both to the Bible, to, to Jane Eyre, um, which is a favorite novel of mine. So there are some little hidden Easter eggs like that throughout throughout the novel, definitely. It, it is the kind of book that you can go back and read and find uh, little surprises because, uh, you know, if you're reading for the storyline, you're trying to figure out what's going to happen to Annalise and the other characters you might be reading, you know, quickly. But then if you go back, you can you can sort of dive into these little segments and the prose in particular. So before we dive into some of that language, uh, uh, Robert, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about the storyline uh, without giving too much away so our listeners can can get a feel for what we're doing. It's the summer of 1956. Uh, as I said, there's this brood of cicadas. They descend on Providence, Georgia, um, and uh, it, it brings to to life, and early in the book, Annalise Newell, who's only 11 years old at the time, a piano prodigy. Let's talk about Annalise for a minute, uh, where the idea for this character came from, a little bit about her and the world that she's inhabiting. Sure. So the cicada tree really began as a different novel some years ago. I'd started to write a novel that was going to take place in the 1970s, and uh, the protagonist was going to be a little boy. His mother was Annalise, an adult Annalise. And probably about four or five chapters in, I was so fascinated with her um, because she was making such very interesting choices as a parent you know, I was like, you know, what on earth must have you must have you been like as a child to, to become the adult that you are today? And it's just through those questions and that fascination with adult Annalise um, and me imagining her as a child that the cicada tree um, came to life. And so the story, as you said, is set in 1956, and it is the summer that Annalise first encounters the Mayfield family, a wealthy family possessing this otherworldly supernatural beauty that others refer to as that Mayfield shine. And it's this initial meeting that stirs obsession with Annalise and sets her down this dark path of manipulation and dangerous games, uncovering secrets along the way, ultimately culminating in a cataclysmic plague of cicadas. So yeah. it's a feel-good story. <laughs> yeah. Until the cicadas come to town. Exactly. And, and, and until the Mayfields try to ruin their lives. And in fact, Annalise starts out uh, fairly naive, and she's living uh, in sort of a, um, you, you know, not too much of a class-conscious uh, household. She, you know, she's uh, she's white, uh, African-Americans. Uh, I mean, they're all, but, but she doesn't really understand the world outside of that very much, does she? And that's what she's going to she get introduced know. to. So, yeah. you know, she, Annalise is, you know, if they're not in poverty, they're not in abject poverty, but they're they're not comfortably middle class, certainly. And um, Annalise has never experienced a family like a family as wealthy as the Mayfields. And it's not until that point in time where she realizes and she begins to to get the sense that you know perhaps they that they aren't as well off as she thought they might have been, and that their, that their circumstances could certainly be improved. Yeah, you know, you do focus on the, in the book on the uh, separation of, of the races to some extent in the novel, but yeah, I think you really focus more on uh, this issue of class separation. I was just wondering why you chose to put more emphasis there than on race. Sure. Well, you know, I, I don't know that I felt competent enough to tackle issues of race. I think that I think you can 
you certainly understand, I think, in the novel what life was like in pre-civil rights Georgia. But I didn't set out to write the story and, and give a lesson on class, really, or race. They just, um, or at least I didn't consciously think that I was doing that. You know, a lot is at play uh, in the subconscious and the creative process. So I think that out on the other side of things, uh, of course, Southern Gothic by its very nature really is the um, the examination of and the balancing of that idyllic image that people have of the South with the very troubled past that the South has has suffered through the years. So I think that um, I didn't, that there are people who, who tackle race beautifully. Um, Sue Monk Kidd did in A Secret Life of Bees. Mark Childress did in Crazy in Alabama. Um, but that what I felt like that's been covered and it's been done beautifully. And that just really wasn't um, the story that I really wanted to tell. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I love the characters in the book and I loved, um, you know, the immediate family uh, that uh, surrounded uh, Annalise. Um, before I ask a question about that, though, what you said earlier kind of prompted my curiosity. Does this mean that maybe we're going to see a sequel where Annalise is all grown up and she's dealing with some issues? Well, it's interesting. People asked me if I would ever write another cicada tree book. And my first response was, absolutely not. But um, the, the epilogue that's in the novel was not original to, to the novel. And when I was going through edits with the publisher, I felt like the novel, I think there needed it because it, it, the novel progressively darkens as, as the reader passes from one page to the next. And um, the novel, that last chapter, it, um, it's, it's sort of in a very dark Gothic place. And I wanted, I don't necessarily feel that you have to tie up all the loose ends in a novel, but I did want there to be, I felt like the novel needed a few extra beats and perhaps some glimmer of hope. And it was when I was writing that epilogue that I um, really kind of fell in love with the characters all over again. And I do think my next project is going to be maybe fast forward three years into the mm. future when Annalise is 14 um, and Etta May is 13. And I have a I have a sense of where I would take the story. I know what that inciting incident is. And um, I have I have this uh, vision of of where the, the ending would conclude and how it would conclude. Yeah, we're going to talk about a few writing life questions in a moment. But as you think about that, you're in the midst of uh, launching this book. It's kind of hard to sit down and do all this writing, isn't it? It is. Um, and I, I love the act of writing. Um, but you're right, you know, getting a novel out into the world, especially a debut novelist and you know, being with a smaller press, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of hard work. And I've been fortunate so far. People have been kind and, and they've supported me and the novel. Um, mm -hmm. I do hope to be able to get back in the writing seat very quickly. I'm always thinking about what's next. And I'm always writing the story in my head, trying to sort through things. So in a way, I guess I'm constantly, even in promoting the book, I am engaged in some level of creative process. Yeah. Um, and I, I kind of call that the cogitating stage because I've, I've got a book out now too, and I'm thinking about the next one in, in the series, but I haven't been able to sit down. I'll make a few notes here and there. I'll think about something I want to do. I better write something down there or I'll forget, I'll forget it yeah. if, I, if I don't. Uh, hey, about the other characters that inhabit the household, which is where I was going just a minute ago. You've got Miss Wessie. Uh, she is sassy and prescient. Uh, I love that character. Where did she come from? I think that um, Miss Wesley really is sort of a composite of um, grandmotherly, great-grandmotherly 
authority figures that I've had throughout my life. Um, she's, and um, when I loved her. She's one of my favorite characters. So I did treat her with the grace and respect that I would have wanted anyone to treat a grandmother. So, yeah, I think that she's just sort of a love letter to all of those women who have um, had influence on my life and have been caregivers to me. Yeah, and then there's Adam May uh, and, uh, of course, Annalise's mother, and those round out, you know, the the, the existing family unit there, so to speak. Um, when you were writing uh, Annalise's mother, you'd already written Annalise as an adult. <laughs> Did some of her end up in Annalise's mother? Um. Maybe just a little bit, you know, and I think that, you know, characteristics, you know, I think, you know, sometimes mothers and daughters are a little similar and it's just based upon, you know, that frame of reference and coexisting together. Um, but um, different, but yeah, there are pro- perhaps some elements of, of grown up Annalise that, that I peppered into, into grace. We're going to talk more about the uh, language and beauty of the book, uh, but we've got, uh, a uh, little reading here on Charlotte's podcast where authors give voice to the written words. You're going to start uh, early in the book. I think uh, this is one of the very early scenes. If there's anything you want to say to set it up, uh, you can do that and then just start reading whenever you're ready. Thank you. So this is the first chapter. and it, it's um, I'm going to pick up um, a few paragraphs down in the second scene. And so the girls, so there's a storm outside. And um, Annalise is, and um, Edame are at the piano. Uh Edame is going to is preparing to go sing at a funeral, and Annalise is preparing to accompany her mother, who cleans uh, house for the Mayfields on the weekend. Um, and so, this is the conversation, the interactions that are happening between Edame and Annalise. Percussion rolled above us, vibrating the floorboards. Piano keys shivered. Everywhere was music, even in the clink of Mama's jelly jar vase. Wish I could go with you. My voice sounded peculiar amidst the storm's refrain. Me too. Edame sat down next to me on the piano bench, leaning her head against my shoulder. But you get to go to the Mayfields. She fingered her fingers across my arm. Folks say the whole town could fit right inside their house. I guess. I contemplated the size of such a place. The place Mama went on Saturdays to earn extra money. Must take a long time to clean. Maybe you could play with Marlissa. Marlissa, such a pretty name. I poked gently at the cicada shell hidden inside my pocket. In truth, I knew very little of the Mayfields or their daughter Marlissa. Mama never spoke of them, and I had yet to see one up close and in the flesh. Only the passing of their long black car through town. The world caught and reflected in the sheen of its darkened windows. One more time, Miss Wessie said from the kitchen. Then it's dressing time. The rain dissipated, the weight of Miss Wessie's feet across the floorboards audible once more. Edame lifted her head from my shoulder. The cicada shell shifted in my pocket, the sharp tips of its legs sticking into my skin, grabbing hold around my finger. I flicked at the thing until it turned loose, my fingers finding their place on the keys. Edame did not wait for my music, finding the song within her, without the help of a single note of mine. I pulled my hands from the piano and listened, sorrow seeping from the perfect pitch of her soprano. I sat, eyes shut, letting her enchantment settle over me, feeling a tingle just under my skin. 
the weight of the thing growing until it sat heavy, pressing against my insides until there was nothing left for me to do but cry. Rain fell against the tin, at first a smattering, the tempo gaining speed, the force greater until there was no other sound, nothing left of the music but a deafening whirr and the vinegary taste of sadness on my tongue. That's wonderful, Robert. Thank you for that. So I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the language um, and sort of how you <clears throat> pull this off. I mean, uh, as you're writing a story um, that's going to be a novel length and you're trying to think about characters and you're thinking about the plot, and you're thinking about inciting incidents and reversals and all the things you're thinking about, um, do you because uh, some of the I'm just going to reference a couple of these. This one struck me right away. It was uh, it was early in the book, um, and they were talking about. Um, I think Annalise was talking with Etta May, and um, she was thinking about how much of a friend she was to her, and, and she, but she wasn't going to answer the question honestly. And she said, "Forthrightness bound the edges of our friendship, but in that moment." I let loose a corner, let it fall right out of my hand. I mean, I just, I sat back and thought that that's amazing. Which I mean, a lot of writers would say that eh, she just lied to her, but you, you took that a, a, a step further. And I'm wondering, is that the kind of thing you do, Robert, as you're writing or do you kind of go back uh, and in the rewriting stage, flesh some of those out? So the beauty of language and the, the, the lyricism that I um, am drawn to is really so important in the end. I, I wish that I could write more quickly, mm-hmm. but um, I sort of edit as I go and I know that it holds me back, but um, I'm a bit of perf- bit of a perfectionist. So um, I'll, I'll have a sense rhythmically of, of, of how I want a certain pass to go or a certain chapter to go or what that last resonant image might be. And I really have trouble moving forward until I can find that. Now, um, of course, we all know that, that novels are written in revision. So, you know, I, that I did go back. And I think that I probably first time pass through Landis, I probably overwrite. And then mm-hmm. when I come back, I actually have to go back and kind of pull my toes back from the corner of, of being excessive. So I think that for my edit, I, I tend to sort of, again, I think it's overwriting. And then it's pulling myself back, trying to find that balance. So when you're sitting there at the keyboard or you've got the pen in your hand, however you do it, uh, and you're thinking about how to describe the sky, there's a, there's a description on page 30. The sky took pictures, setting off a frenzy of camera flashes. The ground grumbled, a long roll of a timpani drum. Now, do you, do you sort of drop back and think, how am I going to describe the sky now? Or does that just kind of flow with you as you're writing what how does that work i wish that i could say it comes extremely easily and yeah <laughs> but I, I mean i do i do work at it i think we all have those magic moments right where sure. where the stars align and things happen for us smoothly um but i think that that writing is kind of like painting but it's just with words and mm. so I, I try really hard to sit back and um, imagine like, so how can I, how can I put this moment or this picture of this feeling into words? And so I do find myself very contemplative. So there are these great pauses throughout my writing process where I am just sitting back, 
trying to reimagine or figure out how I might be able to express something um, in a new and different way. Well, I love the way you similes too. Uh, we tolerated her like a fly at a picnic. <laughs> <laughs> and you get, I mean, just in a, in a very short sentence, you, you sum up, you know, what they're dealing with, you know, in this particular uh, person. She's talking about Virginia Fenton, right? The annoying probably, Virginia Fenton. Probably so, yeah. yeah. Um, it says, and there's this other line, I understood what she meant. I knew what it was like to stand in the shine of a Mayfield, so blinding you have to squint. And that that described really the difference in the ostentatiousness of the Mayfields versus what they were living in everyday life, but also how they carried themselves and how they ignored people that were beneath them. Uh, it was so blinding, they almost had to squint. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then there's this one I, I loved. I think it's Miss Minnie Jean, uh, mm. where she says, uh, Miss Minnie Jean is sort of lecturing, and she says, uh, haven't you? Miss Minnie Jean held out her vows until she wore out her welcome. <laughs> See, you, you've probably been to church over the years or been to school or something where somebody has worn out their vows, right? But you don't often think about it in those terms until you're writing, you know, with this rhythm. Um, Miss Minnie Jean, the church organist. Yeah, the church she, organist. She was the hardest character for me to like. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I mean, you, and you described her well. Smelled like musty hymnals, old lady, smell, old lady smells, Camouflage with Chantilly dusting powder. Um, and then uh, Annalise's mother, Annalise is observing this in her point of view, but she says uh, uh, when her mother complimented, uh, I think it was uh, Miss Minnie's outfit, she says, Mama stomped on the truth. It's quite becoming. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I love that because it, you know, she's seeing that from, the, from an 11-year-old. She's saying, that's not true. How could she possibly say that was becoming? Uh, right. But, uh, yeah, well, no, it's really it's really beautiful, and I, I would commend it to the to the listeners because um, it's the kind of novel that's got a great story to it, but it's also very ly lyrical. So, talk about the setting and the time period just a minute. Um, you know, we've got this period um, where things are a little bit different than they are today, but are they really, Robert? Have things really changed as much from then to now? Yeah, that well, that's an interesting question. I don't I don't know that human nature has changed much. I think that um. Yeah, I mean, the, this novel takes place in pre-civil rights South. I think that, you know, we believed for a while there that we made great progress. But I think that we all know just, you know, over these last few years that it seems that we've seen a bit of a regression. So I don't know. It, it's troubling. Um, I, I wrote the novel in 1956 because personally, I think that most people romanticize the past. And I think that telling the sort of story that has elements of the supernatural and magical realism, it, it seems to me that perhaps it's easier for a reader to suspend disbelief when they're reading a story that takes place in a different time. I mean, I don't think that's a finite rule, but for me, I just prefer writing. Um, I don't know that I could tell, a, I, if I had to tell a story in modern time, I certainly would attempt to do it, but I just prefer yesterday, I think, to today. That's great. All right. Well, a few writing life questions. You serve as a uh, prose editor for the Blue Mountain Review, as I understand. Talk about how being an editor yourself either helps or hinders your own writing. So it's interesting being on the other side. I think that um, most writers spend so much time trying to get their 
to breathe life into their into the work so that other readers can see it. And um, there's so many closed doors that we all experience. You know, just trying to get our work out into the world is so hard. So I take that opportunity and that privilege to work with Blue Mountain Review very seriously. Um, and I know that I only have so many slots in the fiction section that I can choose. So it's just, you know, giving the, um, uh, trying to be as open-minded, trying to be in um, a clear frame of mind and give each writer's submissions um, equal attention. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I'm very mindful of how of how demoralizing it can be to receive a rejection. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. How have you dealt with rejection over the years? Um, I think that I just went into it expecting that there would be a lot of it. Um, and sometimes it's, it's, it's difficult. And of course it's, you know, you just always feel like rejoicing when someone has something kind to say. Um, but there's so many no's that we experience along the way. So it's so wonderful when you can celebrate a yes. Absolutely. And you, you've got a big yes to celebrate here because this book is getting a lot of play and a lot of great, uh, uh, reviews. And uh, I'm just wondering, you've got a day job too. How do you balance all this? And now that this has come out, you could have taken as much time as you wanted to write this, but now they're going to expect more, right? I think that, yeah, that's what I'm told. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it's really, it's, it's hard. I think that most writers have a day job. Um, if you mm-hmm. can focus completely 100% on writing, how lovely for you. But it's, right. I think that there are very few writers who can sustain themselves just on Writing and of course I love my day job. You know I, I work in the world of nonprofit, uh, providing uh, services to children who are living in poverty and who have disabilities. So writing for me, um, I have to get up a couple of hours before I start my day job. So I'll um, I'll get up at four thirty, write for two hours, get ready at about six thirty, and head into the office. And weekends are important writing time for me. I'm an early I'm an early morning person. Um, after lunch, if you told me I had to write something, it's just going to be a struggle. Mm. Uh, my creativity seems to come um, early on in the day. Yeah, well, your writing has that dreamlike quality. I was wondering whether being up so dang early has something to do with that. Um, yeah, you know what? Perhaps I right out of a dream state, right out of sleep, um, if I ever have an issue with plot or I just don't know where to go next – it's, it's those moments early on that I'm able often to figure out what needs to happen next. Brushing my teeth or shaving or showering, magic happens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you, th- things come to you when you least expect it. Mm-hmm. Um, you probably didn't have any deadlines on yourself when you're writing this. How long did it take you, Robert, to, to pull this together? I, mean, I would say if you were to condense the time, you know, those moments where I loved it and hated it, divorced right. it and came back to it. Um, and maybe five years, I'm yeah. thinking, um, my goal is to maybe try to have something written, a, a first draft of something of the new project by this time next year. That, that's that's the goal. Yeah. And so, uh, I asked this of, uh, writers who've, you know, done a lot of writing and gotten their book out now. And given the fact you took that time to write this, if you could tell your younger writing self, that person, when you first started writing the cicada tree, something a value that uh, had that person known it based on what you've learned since then that would help them in the writing process, what would it be? Well, I think that it's important for you to write what you love to read. And I think that you have to know that telling a story is like being in a relationship. 
if you're going, you're, you just have to know up front that once you commit to it, you're going to be with it for a while. And so you better love it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I say the same thing. Don't try to, to write to the market, write what you love or find something that you want to write about because you've got to be energized, right? To stay with it. Agreed. I don't know that I could write to the market. I, I, I hoped that if I wrote the things that I love and the things that I would want to read, that um, certainly if um, if I did that, hopefully it would also have commercial viability. Yeah, that's great. Well, let me just tell our listeners, uh, listeners, we're going to jump over here in just a moment to our Patreon channel. Uh, that's at patreon.com forward slash Charlotte podcast, where for a cup of coffee a month, that's about five bucks, you can get access to over 100 exclusive episodes. We're doing a little thing now called 10 Minutes of uh, tips about reading and writing and uh, Robert and I are going to talk about what, what he's reading and what he likes to read and maybe a few more writing tips. So join us there. Um, uh, Robert, you've already indicated so, sort of what's next, but I guess you've got to get through uh, through the launch here and uh, into the summer to kind of get uh, really churning on this thing, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm taking notes. I'm, I'm scribbling things. I'm getting ideas. I'm, I'm um yeah, it's, it's germinating. We'll see. <laughs> that's, that's great. When the cicadas pop out, it'll be a good reminder. Uh, well, listeners, uh, we, we've been talking today with Robert Gwaltney. He's the author of The Cicada Tree. It's a wonderful book. Uh, it is available now. You can pick it up. Uh, Robert, is this, uh, I, I know it's in print, ebook. Is it going to be an audiobook as well? Um, I'm not sure. There's a possibility. You know, I spoke to yeah. the publisher about that, and we'll just see how things how things go. Um, right now, as you said, it's it's um, trade paperback fiction, and it's um, available via um, ebook as well. So we'll see. I I think it would be fun to hear it as an audio book. Uh, you, you know, look, and I tell you what, if they don't want the rights, you grab those rights back and uh, connect with uh, a good narrator and uh, do it yourself, because uh, this would be the kind of book that people would love to listen to uh, with a nice narrator. You know several times so yeah check that out hey look robert uh, i know you're busy i know you're on the road uh, promoting the book i want to thank you for being on charlotte readers podcast thank you so much for having me well that's it for today another fine author giving voice to the written words you can subscribe to this podcast for free at apple podcast stitcher spotify iHeartRadio most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.